0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds case report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember... We are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds.
2: Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the cardio nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as cardio nerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing
1: cardio nerds colleagues. Welcome back, CardioNerds. We are so excited to be hanging out with colleagues and friends, fellows from the University of Florida Cardiology Fellowship Training Program, especially as we dive into the winter. It's just so great to be in Gainesville, Florida today. So I'll welcome to the show, Drs. Hussain Khalid, Morgan Randall, and Ashley Mohajer. Folks, welcome to the show. Really excited to learn from you. Would you please introduce yourselves to the audience?
3: Absolutely. And thanks so much for having us here. I'll go ahead and start. So I'm Ashley Mohajer. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at UF, and I'm also the chief fellow this year. I'm originally from Southern California, took a little tour across the U.S., doing my residency in Cleveland, Ohio at the Cleveland Clinic, and then came down here to sunny Florida to get away from those cold winters for cardiology fellowship. I'll be pursuing interventional cardiology after this year. And some fun facts about me outside of medicine. I enjoy very amateur photography, any sort of outdoor activity, and I was actually a professional ballet dancer before I was in medicine.
4: Hi, everyone. My name is Hussain Khalid. I'm a second year cardiology fellow at the University of Florida. I'm actually originally from Florida, but I did spend a large portion of my childhood growing up overseas and then returned for undergraduate and medical education at the University of Florida. I followed Ashley. I came to internal medicine residency in Cleveland at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. And then it was also just a little too cold for me, so I came back down to sunny Florida for cardiology training. I plan to do general cardiology with an emphasis in cardiac imaging and in advanced imaging. I do love basketball, tennis, and all kind of American professional and collegiate sports. I love to cook. I love to travel.
0: And that's me. And I'm Morgan Randall. I'm also a second year fellow here at the University of Florida. I do not share the affinity for the cold that the rest of my colleagues do. So I went to Kentucky for medical school before beautiful, sunny Charleston, South Carolina for residency, and then University of Florida for fellowship. So I will be pursuing also a career in interventional cardiology afterwards. I love sports in general. Uh, especially collegiate sports and especially college football. I'm super pumped that college football is back on, even with the socially distanced nature. Also love to travel, which also has COVID implications. My hobbies are great for me, and I'm, I'm happy that they're coming back around.
2: Hussein, Morgan, Ashley, what a treat to have you guys on the show. And as I talked to you about earlier, I came to work this morning in 60 degree weather with a nice fleece on which has a perk because I do have a little cute cardio nerd's pin on it that Amit made for us. But (laughs) I have stripped that off and I have flown down to Florida with Amit to join you today for an amazing talk about cardiology and for you guys to shower amazing educational pearls because this case is going to be amazing. So Gainesville, Florida, super excited. Can you take us around Gainesville and take us to your favorite place to chill so we can talk about some serious cardiology?
3: Absolutely. So there are lots of great places here. We've got great coffee shops, a good food scene, despite being a college town. There's also a lot of outdoor activities like the springs where you can kayak and hang out with some manatees and turtles. But we decided today that we were going to take you guys to a socially distanced UF cardiology tailgate for the Gator football UF versus LSU game.
1: Oh man, this might get us in a little bit of trouble here, but I'm all in. And I was thinking, Ashley, I feel like you're just a few years ahead of me geographically. Like you, I too used to be in South California and now I'm in Cleveland. And so Mm -hmm. I think that just bodes really well for me for what my future may look like. So this is my sneak peek into Gainesville (laughs) style uh, tailgate party. So let's do it. Let's rock on and, and dive into some awesome cardiology. What do you guys have for us?
3: All right. So we have a case of a 61-year-old female. She uh, she came to see us at the Spring Hill Cardiology Clinic to establish care, and she had a chief complaint of, someone told me my neck artery was blocked. So pretty dramatic chief complaint. Diving further into questioning, we learned that she was told that she had an occlusion of her abdominal aorta many years ago at an outside institution, but she'd never had dedicated workup or imaging. She had relayed this history to her primary care physician who had ordered a carotid duplex ultrasound just to evaluate the extent of suspected peripheral arterial disease. And she was found to have a 99% occlusion of her right carotid artery with a patent left carotid. So moving forward with our history, she describes activity-limiting claudication symptoms, stating that she has difficulty walking more than a block or two before developing pain in her bilateral calves that sometimes will radiate up to her thighs. She does say that this discomfort improves with rest, but she thinks that her activity is limited more by this leg discomfort than the little bit of dyspnea that she tells us about as well. She denies any sort of chest pain, palpitations, lightheadedness, dizziness. She has no lower extremity edema and no wounds and no evidence of headaches.
1: What an incredible patient. Oftentimes we'll say the patient comes in with chest pain of this character. And so what's a differential diagnosis, but she's coming to you telling you that my neck artery right here is blocked. Don't you wish that all patients were like this? Imagine a patient that comes in with chest pain and says, I've got an 80% occlusion of the left circumflex at the bifurcation of OM1. I mean, it's just, it'd be so incredible if every patient was like this. So kudos to her for knowing what was going on and having enough health literacy to guide you the right way to begin with. So really great.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. She was really on top of her care and was very educated and really trying to read up on everything that had been going on with her as well. So great point. But to further round out her medical history here, besides what we've talked about already, she does have type 2 diabetes, hypothyroidism, and a diagnosis of hypertension as well. She was on a baby aspirin, high-dose atorvastatin, and some thyroid hormone replacement. Now, she was on medical therapy for treatment of hypertension, but it seems that over the last few months, her blood pressures had been trending down despite really any other change in lifestyle and change in terms of her symptoms and how she'd been feeling. So at this point, she was really taken off of all of her medical therapy. She does have a family history of stroke, hyperlipidemia, and coronary artery disease in her father. Her father had a myocardial infarction. Maybe when he was in his 20s, she's not exactly sure on the date, but he was certainly quite young. And then last but not least, she had quit smoking. She was a former smoker, quit back in 2010, but otherwise denied any other alcohol or illicit drug use. So before jumping into physical exam, this seems like a pretty concerning patient and story. So Hussein, are, are we biased in Florida in the Southeast or does this problem seem to be as, as common as what we're seeing here?
4: I'm so glad we're discussing a peripheral arterial disease case. Just absolutely right, Ashley. It's such a nice pivot from the more commonly discussed topics within cardiovascular medicine and a topic I have a lot to learn about. It's very underrecognized, and despite being so widely prevalent in the USA, the prevalence is actually around 6% in adults over the age of 40 years and around 30% in those greater than 70 years old, with higher prevalence and severity among African Americans and Hispanics. The estimated mean annual incidence of PAD is around 2.5% in the U.S., and the annual healthcare expenditure here for Americans with PAD is around $4 billion. So it's important for us as clinicians and particularly in the ambulatory clinic setting to recognize and diagnose PAD because there's a three- to four-fold increased risk of cardiovascular events, even in the setting of asymptomatic disease. There's also a 15 to 20% five-year mortality rate, primarily from cardiovascular disease for patients with PAD. So we can really make a big difference for these patients by identifying the disease early. Speaking of which, Morgan, I know you love a thorough physical exam. What should we be looking for while examining these patients? One day before we go to the physical
2: exam, I just wanted to say kudos, Hussein and Ashley, for bringing out such an important problem. And PAD, not only is it a problem in that it can cause severe debilitating symptoms, but it's also a marker for severe cardiovascular disease. And just reflecting for this particular patient, you know she's in her early 60s coming in with these the symptoms of what sounds like claudication and being told that arteries are blocked and I'd be freaking out. I know where a lot of us are young pups here and not close to that age. But that is, that would be really scary to me. Somebody who I would consider like middle ages having all these symptoms and basically hearing the stats that you presented just now just really alerts us to the fact that she needs an intervention, not necessarily a a traditional intervention, but she needs some sort of lifestyle medication intervention. I would give her major props for quitting smoking. And I would also thank her for coming in to seek an opinion in the cardiology clinic.
1: And I'll just add also, of course, we have to take care of where she is right now and evaluate the ideologies of her symptoms and how we can correct them. But just thinking ahead, both for her and for people in general, her situation so far really underlines the fact that atherosclerotic disease is a system-wide problem. You may have somebody who has claudication or a triple A, meaning abdominal aortic aneurysm, but that pathophysiology is... Present in every vascular bed. And so when we think about PAD specifically, their biggest ideology of mortality is probably going to be heart attacks and strokes because it's the same vascular pathology. And then for people in general, it's a really, it's a huge red flag in my mind that she has a family history in a first degree relative of having premature MI, but her father had an MI at the age of 20s. And so that is huge. And it's important to just for the audience to recognize that. Family history doesn't make its way into the 10-year ASCVD risk calculator, right? The the pull cord equations. And that's because when they studied it in all comers, the addition of family history didn't reclassify enough patients. But that fails to recognize that there are different doses of family history. So if you have multiple relatives that have had atherosclerotic endpoints, or if they were very young. And so her dad was extremely young when he had his first MI. And for assuming this wasn't a different non atherosclerotic ideology like SCAD or vasospasm or a bridge or anomalous coronary or vasculitis or something non atherosclerotic, that's a huge family history dose that really makes us want to think of well, what is the, is there a familial component? Could we potentially be missing like a familial cholesterol syndrome or LP little a syndrome or something along those lines? But that's a huge red flag in this patient.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm sure, Ashley, you'll talk about that. But we also, I love my physical exam. And I'm sure you look for these things on exam. But it's history and physical for a reason. The physical exam is not dead. So anytime you get a patient who you suspect might have PAD, the best thing to do is start with good old blood pressure. It's easy. It's cheap. It's quick. It's actually a 1B recommendation. And you can even do in-office ABIs, which I suspect will get to ankle brachial indices later. Also, when you're doing your exam, you want to listen for brewies. So if you have that kind of turbulent flow in an artery, you might be able to hear it if you're listening in the right spot. Also, when you're looking at the extremities themselves, start off looking at the skin color. Is it different than the otherwise tone of their skin? Maybe that's a clue. When you're assessing the extremities, feel the skin temperature. Use the back of your hand or whatever method you've been using in your training, but quick pearl make sure the room is actually warm. In the winter, my wife will shove her cold toes under my thigh. Doesn't mean she has PAD, it just means the room is cold. So think about the room (laughs) temperature uh, because if they have cold toes in a cold room, that may not be your most specific test. And then also palpating pulses. We're talking lower extremity. Think about the dorsalis pedis or tibias posterior pulses typically, and just practice feeling those on your exam. Uh, If there is PAD, you can see ulcerations. Typically, these would be at the tips of the digits. They might be painful or have a little bleeding. If it's bad, there even could be some gangrene. Also, if you're going to do provocative testing, think about doing the burger test. That test is when you elevate the foot and wait for the venous blood to drain. At that point, if there's PAD, you would probably see pallor or kind of a whitening or less robust color in the leg. When you move it down to the dependent position, you would probably see rubor if there's PAD. Also note how long it takes for blood to return to the extremity. If it's more than 20 seconds, there's probably a component of peripheral arterial disease. And finally, just because the exam is so important, Ashley already mentioned our patient has diabetes. Think about other things that could be going on with the extremities, assessing for diabetic neuropathy or venous stasis or other non-PAD disease when you're doing your exam. So Ashley, did our patient have any of that?
3: So awesome review, Morgan. Jumping into the exam, hopefully we'll do you some justice here. We did attempt to get blood pressures in both upper extremities. Historically, she reports that it's very challenging for her to get a blood pressure in the right upper extremity. What we got was basically 83 over 62 on the right upper extremity. Left upper extremity was 96 over 63. Heart rate of 101, kind of borderline tachycardic there. She was afebrile, satting well on room air, and she has a BMI of 28.17. Moving into our, our rest of our physical exam here, she was in no acute distress. Her cardiovascular exam, she had a regular rhythm, no audible murmurs. We could not appreciate any bruis for her. She had no pitting edema, but she did have very poorly palpable distal pulses in all of her extremities. So radial, posterior tibial, and dorsalis pedis all were really very difficult to palpate or not palpable at all. Her extremities were a little on the cooler side, no obvious wounds or lesions that we could appreciate. And the rest of her exam was pretty unremarkable.
2: You're preaching to the choir and really to the audience when you frame a physical exam in such a beautiful way with going into the physical exam with what you're hunting for, capturing that in the physical exam, and then re-exploring that and applying it to a differential diagnosis. It's really a model for any amazing cardio nerd, but also med nerd physical exam and approach to your P. So kudos on that, guys. Totally floored.
3: Thanks, guys. Yeah. And last but not least, just to round out the clinic visit here, we did get an EKG for this lady as this is the first time that we're seeing her in office. Sinus rhythm, nice narrow QRS, really nothing to write home about on the EKG. So that was great for her. Just sort of reflecting on our conversation with her and then our physical exam, I think that our exam findings further support pretty significant PAD in this patient, given that she has multiple extremities that may be affected. Hussein, what else should we be thinking about, especially in a middle-aged or younger patient, as we were just discussing a few minutes ago?
4: From regards to the differential diagnosis of PAD, when a patient prevents with extremity pain or claudication-like symptoms, you may think of venous occlusive disease, such as deep vein thrombosis, or even the common musculoskeletal etiologies like arthritis, muscle strain, or a Baker's cyst, for example. The neurological causes like Morgan was touching on that are important to evaluate in the physical exam, like neuropathy, you should also consider like nerve root compression, rare cases like thoracic outlet syndrome. But even touching on what you were getting at, Ashley, even when the diagnosis of PADs made, there are a variety of etiologies to consider. Most common etiology, particularly in older adults, is of course atherosclerotic disease. But there are more rare causes, particularly when we look at patients who are younger or patients with upper extremity PAD, and that includes external compression of the vessel from tumor, for example, repetitive trauma, and thoracic outlet syndrome, this time compressing the vasculature. Patients who have thrombosed aneurysms, thromboembolic disease, and an arterial dissection can also narrow the lumen of the artery. And then finally, you can also have disorders of the artery itself. I think Amit was touching on some of these earlier, like vasculitis, like giant cell arteritis and Takayasu arteritis, or even Berger's disease and disorders like fibromuscular dysplasia.
0: This is slightly off topic, but you guys can edit that if you want. When you're talking about differential for PAD, I had a patient in residency and his right leg was like four times more swollen than his left. And uh, long story short, We were assessing for why that was the case. It turns out this guy just had lymphadenopathy in his groin, and it had compressed his lymphatics, his venous system, and even had uh, compressed his arterial system a little bit. So he actually had a little bit of claudication just from lymphadenopathy. I thought that was a cool thing that probably does not make it into the majority of differential diagnoses.
1: Yeah that is such a great point Morgan and we'll definitely have to keep that in because it is a really important cause of uh, unilateral it could be bilateral but essentially of leg edema and is the underlying pathophysiology for lymphatic filariasis from varicaria and one of the clinical problem solvers cases, I think, had lymphadenopathy from sarcoidosis presenting as unilateral oh, nice. leg edema with, I think, the, the discussion there was Gruppi Wall. So you essentially just made the point that uh, Gruppi Dhaliwal, master clinician from UCSF made. So an awesome point taken. This definitely could be a harbinger of badness, like underlying uh, lymphoma and other uh, lymphadenopathy causes.
4: Absolutely. That was a terrific story. And Ahmed and Dan, you guys can take this out at the end if also needed for time's sake. But I had another crazy story. Speaking of crazy stories, you all may remember the Markel Fultz saga when he was a number one NBA draft pick. By the Philadelphia 76ers in 2017, he arrived to the NBA and all of a sudden it seemed like he forgot how to shoot a basketball and his shooting mechanics were entirely different. And he was subsequently benched for the most of the season and many at the time, including me, felt that his career was in jeopardy and he would have been one of the more prominent NBA busts in history. But after consulting with several physicians, the diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome was made. And I remember this really sparking my interest in peripheral arterial disease as a medicine resident interested in cardiovascular disease because there was so much mystery and intrigue surrounding this bizarre, slowly unfolding case that year. So I had done a deep dive into the vascular component of thoracic outlet syndrome. It ultimately appeared that Mark Alford's had primarily a neurogenic component. I thought it's just really a glaring look at the potential Impact on even young individuals that these problems can have. Yeah, that's definitely staying in. (laughs) in. (laughs) (laughs) We're on a house house episode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is going to
3: (laughs) happen.
1: So Uh, let's get back to our patient. What was next?
3: Yeah. So at this point, we were certainly worried about the burden of atherosclerotic disease for this patient. So we did plan a myocardial perfusion imaging study to look for concomitant coronary artery disease. Ideally, we would prefer to do an exercise treadmill test, but this patient is coming in complaining of claudication. And so we decided to do the myocardial perfusion imaging test. We did order ABIs to assess the severity of her peripheral arterial disease. We also ordered a CTA head, neck, and abdomen to really look at this abdominal aortic occlusion that it sounds like she had been told in the past on some imaging, as well as to flush out what's going on with the head and neck arteries here, because we also have upper extremities that are affected. We, of course, talked with her about starting an exercise regimen for PAD. We thought this was so important just to see if we could improve her activity tolerance and improve her claudication symptoms. And then we did discuss medical therapy here as well. Would she benefit from dual anaplatelet therapy or potentially celostazole? I'll toss the ball to Hussein here because I think he wanted to throw some pearls in about exercising these patients.
4: So absolutely, Ashley. So the most recently published American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology guidelines on the management of patients with lower extremity PAD included four recommendations supporting exercise therapy for patients with PAD. Those guidelines gave supervised exercise treadmill training a Class 1 level of evidence A recommendation on the basis of multiple randomized clinical trials showing the efficacy of supervised exercise treadmill training to improve claudication onset time or distance, peak walking distance, and other clinically meaningful functional outcomes as well. Also, as a part of those four guidelines, there was another class one recommendation and that was that a supervised exercise program should be discussed with the patient as a treatment option prior to any attempt at revascularization. These exercise regimens are comparatively inexpensive when we compare them to invasive revascularization strategies. Exercise can augment collateral flow, improve deformation and flow characteristics of the blood, decrease our reliance on anaerobic metabolism, and also increase oxygen extraction. And these supervised exercise programs have been shown to improve pain-free walking distance up to 180% from resting values. I remember one of my fantastic residency mentors, Dr. Richard Josephson. He came to visit us at University of Florida last year, just one of the many excellent guest speakers that we're privileged here as fellows to meet and learn from. And he gave an excellent grand rounds presentation on cardiac rehabilitation programs. Those are extremely underutilized, though they've shown great benefits in many instances on par or better than medical therapy and a plethora of cardiovascular disease. And I remember his key phrase still rings in my ears. He would always say, if it were a pill, you would prescribe it. So these exercise regimens in PAD are definitely something we should be prescribing.
3: Yeah, I love that you brought up that ground rounds. And I, I completely remember that, Hussein. And I think in the other ear as well, we hear Dr. C. Richard Conti talking about cardiac rehab in our conferences all the time, one of the former ACC presidents. And so he has also been a huge proponent of, of cardiac rehab and exercise therapy. And so I'm really glad that we referred our patient for this to see if she could get some improvement.
0: Yeah. So glad that she was referred. On top of that, we have to think about some other non pill prescriptions. So thinking about guideline directed therapy, first of all, quit smoking. She's already done that. I may not be the world's best test taker, but anytime I see quit smoking on a multiple choice question, it's probably the right answer. So anybody who you think has PAD, uh, <laughs> tell them to quit smoking. And then also in terms of the actual medication management, the most recent guidelines are from 2016, but the things you would think about right off the bat statins, there are 1A recommendation, also risk factor modification so making sure that their blood pressure is well controlled. There's some evidence for an ACE inhibitor or ARB, but again, this should be individualized for your patient. And adequate glucose control, also a class one recommendation. If your patient has symptomatic peripheral arterial disease, or if they are asymptomatic and their ankle brachial index is positive, then they should be on aspirin, either anywhere between 75 and 325 milligrams a day, or clopidogrel 75 milligrams a day. As monotherapy, and that's actually been proven to prevent myocardial infarction, stroke, and vascular death. A lot of that comes from the Capri trial, which had patients with symptomatic PAD and showed a 24% reduction in the composite endpoint of stroke, vascular death, and MI in patients treated with clopidogrel monotherapy compared to aspirin. Ticagrelor has also been studied, but there's less evidence in the setting of patients without concomitant coronary disease or an ACS syndrome. DAPT or dual antiplatelet therapy, generally not utilized prophylactically for PAD. There's a class 2B recommendation for patients who are symptomatic uh, for the reduction in cardiovascular ischemic events and for patients who've already undergone revascularization. That data, a lot of it's from the Charisma study that looked at DAPT and benefit in those patients. For that subset, generally you want to give DAPT patients who have a high risk of ischemic events and a low risk of bleeding, so not for everybody Ashley already brought up Celastazole. It's a type 3 phosphodiesterase inhibitor and is a class 1 recommendation for patients with PAD because it can help with peripheral claudication symptoms and improve walking distance. But we still need to make sure that we prove our patient has PAD. So I'm guessing the ankle brachial indices are next. So Ashley, what does the ABI show?
1: Real quick. This is going great for me so far. I'm learning so much. And two things I've learned are that you're all phenomenal teachers, and Morgan must be a great test taker because whenever (laughs) smoking smoking cessation is an option, it's always the right answer. But specifically in PAD, and just a a tiny morsel of a pearl is uh, a unique circumstance to consider when somebody is a smoker and has PAD, but without traditional atherosclerotic risk factors would be a vasculitis called Berger's disease that typically affects the entire neurovascular bundle. So they may present with a mononeuritis multiplex or PAD and oftentimes both. So just something to be wary of. Obviously, in this patient, we have a number of risk factors and whatnot, but interesting overlap there.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. So Morgan, you are spot on. It is time for the ABIs. So uh, for all the cardio nerds out there who want to take a look at this, when you have a free moment, jump onto the cardio nerds website and take a look at the ABIs, both the numerical values, as well as the waveforms, as we'll describe as those are also particularly important when trying to sort out exactly what's going on. So for our patient, she ended up having an ankle brachial index on the right lower extremity of 0.86 and all of the values on the right side were pretty consistent in the eighties. Her biggest drop off was from the ankle at 84 to the toe of 50. You look at the left side again, her ankle brachial index on the left was 0.76 with the most significant drop off really coming again between the ankle and the toe, 74 at the ankle and 55 at the toe. But honestly, all of these readings are are relatively low. And when we look at the waveforms, these definitely don't look normal. They're very broad waveforms, very dampened. There's a loss of dichrotic notch. Quite honestly, these look primarily like monophasic Doppler waveforms here. So Morgan, why don't you take us through what the heck ABIs are and how we should really look at these for all the nerds listeners out there?
0: Absolutely, would love to. ABI stands for ankle brachial index, which like most things in cardiology is very logical and allows me to just think through it instead of having to memorize random things. It really just means taking the ankle blood pressure and indexing it or dividing it by the brachial blood pressure. So the lab will measure blood pressure And have Doppler tracings, which will include velocity at different segments in the lower extremity arterial tree. You'll start by taking the brachial blood pressure in both arms, and assuming you have both arms, the higher of the two will be your denominator in our index. Our lab measures pressures at the common femoral artery, the superficial femoral artery, the dorsalis pedis, and the toe. And every lab's a little different, but those are the four that our lab has and our image on the Cardio Nerds website. So normal is an index between 1 and 1.4. Now realize that means that the systolic pressure in the legs is probably going to be a little bit higher than the brachial artery as normal goes up to 1.4. However, if the ankle brachial index is less than 0.9 and there are symptoms, that's pretty much diagnostic of PAD, depending on where you look and which center and testing and article. The sensitivity and specificities are in the high 90s. There's other ways to diagnose PAD with ABIs too. So if there's a decrease in sequential blood pressures between adjacent levels of 20 millimeters of mercury or more, or if there's a decrease in the segmental brachial index of 0.15 or more, or finally, if there's a difference between limbs of 30 millimeters of mercury at the same level, all of those things also make a positive ABI study. If the patient is symptomatic, but the ABIs are between 0.9 and 1.4, that patient should get exercise ABIs. Finally, if the ABI is greater than 1.4, that probably means the vessel is calcified and not compressible. In that case, you go to the toe brachial index as a 1B recommendation, and that is considered abnormal if less than 0.7. So for our patient, her ankle brachial index on the right was 0.86, which is considered positive, and on the left at 0.76, which is also positive. And even if we go to the toes, both of those are positive at 0.51 and 0.56. She did not meet for any of the other criteria with a drop between sequential levels or between different legs. But with her history and our ABIs, we feel pretty good that this is positive. So for those of you who are like me and listen to cardio nerds in the car, don't stop just to look, but those are the number. The other thing that you'll notice is that they have squiggly lines right next to them. Those are actually the Doppler waveforms, and those are very important as well. Ashley mentioned them. So, Hussein, I know you have a fun way of thinking about those, so tell us what those are all about.
4: Absolutely, Morgan. The Doppler waveform analysis is also very important and can give an indication of not only the severity of the PAD, but also the location of the lesion. For all the true nerdy cardio nerds, I like to think of the ECG QRS complex when looking at these Doppler waveforms, and specifically the occasional appearance of ventricular tachycardia to help me remember the waveforms. Let me walk you through this. We start from the RSR' prime right bundle branch block pattern in the precordiales, which you can sometimes see with VT, with a taller left rabbit ear. This represents triphasic flow in the Doppler waveform, which is the normal lower extremity arterial Doppler waveform. Then we lose that terminal R' and transition to just an RS complex, as you would see on an ECG. In the Doppler waveform, in this analogy, this represents biphasic flow. Finally, we lose that terminal S wave, and then we just transition to a broad monophasic R wave as you can see in lead AVR in VT. And on the Doppler waveform, this represents monophasic flow. As I mentioned, the normal lower extremity arterial Doppler velocity tracing is triphasic with a sharp upstroke and peak systolic component, or in my analogy, the taller left rabbit ear R-wave, that's followed by an early diastolic component with reversal of flow, represented by a deep S-wave in my analogy, and then finally, a late diastolic component with forward flow, or the smaller R' prime, or right bunny ear, in my analogy. Dude,
1: did you just make an analogy between Doppler flows and EKG? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, we usually wait until the end of the episode, but guys, welcome to the Cardio Nerds family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank
0: you. It's uh, it. like, a, let's get nerdy! Yeah. <laughs> 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 Cardiology, <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, Dan messaged me while you were talking. I smelled a nerd, and I messaged back. <laughs> I am falling in love with that. but, <laughs> but <laughs> honestly, I this is all news to me. Like I, I knew that I need to know this for boards, and me and Dan were talking about this. But this is great learning because it's so relevant. It's so pertinent to what we do day in and day out. But we don't we don't know if you don't look for it and we don't know how to interpret it if you don't have this background so i think this is an incredibly high yield for the audience definitely is for me thank you
2: yeah and it's it's so amazing how abis which is like so simple of a test that's blood pressure and doppler tracings of flow and really tried and true hemodynamics going on at the localized level of the lower extremities gives you so much information that you guys are really exploring with us and honestly Really teaching me, and uh, and shame on me. I have never focused at this much on the tracings that you just did such a beautiful job of, really ex- really inspiring me to learn more about and to dive deeper. And you really made a lot of it intuitive to me. So I, personal sense of gratitude to you all.
4: Awesome. I'm happy you guys appreciate those analogies and just a little bit more about the waveforms just to continue on this train. Initially, as atherosclerosis develops, the elastic and muscular recoil of the vessel wall is lost, resulting in loss of forward flow during late diastole. So just harping back to that analogy, the forward flow during late diastole is represented by that terminal, R prime-like wave on the Doppler waveform. So loss of that flow results in this biphasic waveform. The biphasic signal is considered abnormal if there's a clear transition from a triphasic signal along the vascular tree monophasic waveforms like our patient had are always considered abnormal. The loss of vascular resistance in severe PAD results in loss of reversal of flow and in the monophasic waveform. In the absence of additional obstructions downstream, it's possible for signals downstream to regain a normal waveform. However, the deterioration of the waveform does also really help us indicate the level of the lesion. So I think that's a, a pretty nerdy enough description of the Doppler waveforms for all the cardio nerds listeners. Let's get back to the case. What else did you see on imaging for our patient, Ashley?
3: Hussein, I absolutely loved how nerdy that analogy was, and it was super helpful. I think just based on that description that you provided us, and as we touched on a little bit earlier, all of the waveforms for our patient, all the way up to the common femoral, are abnormal, as you described. And so That again, really suggests that our patient has aortoiliac disease. So the level of the lesion, you know, there's something going on clearly farther superior to where we're looking. And so next up is our CTs. So again, for those visual learners, check out the CardioNerds website to see some images of our patient. So the CT abdomen that we obtained here basically shows a few cuts of what we expected the whole time. She had an occlusion of her abdominal aorta just below the level of the renal arteries. And this extended all the way down to the common iliac arteries. Now, farther distally, she does have reconstitution of flow by significant collaterals. This correlates very clearly with the ABIs. And so we can certainly feel comfortable at this point saying that our patient has an extraordinary burden of peripheral arterial disease. Now, moving superiorly to the CTA head and neck. So we already knew that our patient had that occlusion of the right carotid artery based off of those duplex ultrasound results that she had right when she presented to our clinic. But what we're seeing on the CT images here, she has not only occlusion of her right carotid, but she actually has her right anominate artery completely occluded. This extends all the way into her right subclavian. And again, she gets reconstitutional flow down that right upper extremity through collaterals. Looking farther up into the head and neck vasculature, She has near complete occlusion of the right vertebral artery through much of its course. She has delay in perfusion in the right posterior cerebral artery territory, and she has moderate stenosis of the right intracranial internal carotid artery. Now looking at the left side, she has a very high grade left subclavian stenosis as well. And as you guys can see on these images here, there is the notorious arrow sign to help you locate those lesions if you're having any trouble.
2: I love those.
3: They're the most helpful, right?
2: Like 100% sensitivity and specificity. (laughs) There's no chance you're going to miss a lesion.
3: So at this point, we brought our patient for follow-up in clinic to go over all these imaging results with her and just to touch base to see how she's doing with her exercise regimen and to go through a few basic labs that we had sent off.
1: And actually, maybe because this is an area of particular strength for me, mm-hmm. were there any like pertinent negatives in the CT scan? I imagine you may look for evidence of inflammation, like a thickened arterial wall or periarterial or arteriolar fat stranding or mm-hmm. there was like no flaps, obviously, or like a beads on a string to indicate fibromuscular dysplasia. Right. Or anything to suggest that this is a non-atherosclerotic process, just because this is such a prolific arterial disease.
3: Absolutely. And those are great points. And she did not have anything to suggest any sort of inflammatory or non-atherosclerotic process. We also had obtained some inflammatory labs, again, just to make sure that there wasn't some other process that we were missing, and all of that blood work came back completely normal for this patient. At this point, everything is really suggesting that this is just an incredible burden of atherosclerosis.
1: AKA atherosclerosis fulminans.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Thankfully for her, the myocardial perfusion imaging that she had done showed no abnormalities. So there wasn't any area of reversible or ischemia whatsoever on that test. Her claudication symptoms actually had improved since she started her exercise program. And so that was very encouraging. And she was very pleased about that. She was more active and she had less lower extremity discomfort. And so she was definitely planning to keep up with that. The one notable thing at this visit was that her blood pressure readings were becoming more and more difficult to obtain. Her systolic blood pressure in office at this follow up was in the 70s, both at her primary care physician's office and here in both upper extremities. This was now becoming more of a problem because at times folks were really not able to get an accurate blood pressure reading for her. And so this became a a pretty big point of discussion with the team.
0: So Ashley, I just want to make sure I have all of this. She has a complete infrarenal occlusion of her distal aorta. She has complete occlusion of the innominate artery on the right, extending into the right subclavian, and she has high-grade stenosis at the origin of the left subclavian. So basically, she has almost no direct flow to any of her arms or legs. She has just collaterals.
3: Yep, that's right.
0: That's crazy. I know this is a bit of an unusual case, but somehow it feels a little typical of the referrals we get here at UF.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Very true.
0: (laughs) I I think I'm going to guess this case is going to that table of truth to figure out exactly what's going to happen. But we have to be thinking about revascularization. (laughs) For a case like this, there really aren't any American guidelines. Really what we have are the European Society of Cardiology guidelines from 2017. Our patient has bilateral stenosis and an inability to monitor her blood pressure. So that's a 2B indication for revascularization by those guidelines. And in thinking about it, I think it's very important that you brought up the blood pressure too and important that they comment in it because even with those collaterals, you mentioned that there is an area of delayed flow in the PCA territory. So we already have some suggestion that the perfusion to her brain is suboptimal. Also, there's an indication to make sure her blood pressure is controlled as a cardiovascular risk factor, and we don't know if we're treating it effectively at all. And what if she is admitted to the hospital? Are people going to think she's in shock and try and give her medicines to abnormally elevate her blood pressure? Having at least a ballpark of her actual blood pressure is going to be very important. And then, like we mentioned before, she also is at risk for coronary disease. So what if she has an MI? Is anybody really going to feel comfortable trying to stick the left carotid to get to her heart? How are you going to even get to the coronary? So I think that thinking about revascularization in this type of patient is really very reasonable.
3: Yeah, I was always impressed by the fact that she did not have clear upper extremity claudication symptoms or heaviness in bilateral upper extremities, numbness, tingling, or just fatigue, because if she'd had any of those things, as you referenced those European guidelines, that would actually bump her up to a 2A recommendation to consider revascularization because at that point she would be symptomatic. But I think your, your points are a good one and alluded to that table of truth. And that is actually where she ended up next. So we did take this patient for angiography. We obtained left radial access using a 5-6 French arterial sheath. And we went up with a Fry French tiger catheter into the proximal left subclavian artery and performed angiography. And for those of you who are following along at home, feel free to tune into the CardioNerds website and you'll be able to follow along with these angio images. Once we took some angiography of that left upper extremity, we see that she has this osteo 99% subtotal left subclavian stenosis. So at this point, the team crosses the lesion with a 0.18 command wire, and eventually, after a little ballooning, is able to pass a pigtail catheter into the aorta. She was found to have a gradient of 40 millimeters of mercury across that lesion. Once that pigtail was in place, they were able to actually get really nice four-vessel aortic angiography images using DSA angiography, as you guys can see on the CardioNerds website.
0: So that DSA looks different from the normal cardiac cath films. Hussein, you mind explaining that a little bit more?
4: Absolutely, Morgan. Digital subtraction angiography, or DSA, that's a fluoroscopic technique used to visualize the blood vessels without interference from overlapping tissues, such as bone. All radio-opaque structures are actually subtracted or eliminated from the image, allowing for a really nice isolated image of the vasculature. And that can allow for a lower dose of contrast as well and can be used as a roadmap image for wiring and lesion treatment. Again, as Ashley had mentioned, I highly encourage all those Cardio Nerds listeners to visit the Cardio Nerds website and review those beautiful images.
3: So, taking a look at those images, our patient has a type 1 aortic arch with the left subclavian filling via retrograde flow from the left vertebral artery. We know that this patient has a complete occlusion of her right anominate artery, which we can see there, and she gets reconstitution distally, again, through collaterals down that right arm. So we have a couple of different views for you guys to see that stenosis. Now, at this point, given the fact that this patient had a significant gradient across the lesion, and just with everything that we've spoken about, the team ended up pursuing revascularization. So an IVUS catheter was used to determine stent size and optimal positioning of the stent at the true ostium of the left subclavian artery. And this is important because the last thing anybody wants is for stent struts to be hanging out in the aorta and causing trouble down the line. And by the way, IVUS is intravascular ultrasound imaging. All right, so using our IVUS catheter and guidance, we end up deploying a 7 by 19 millimeter Omnilink stent into the left subclavian artery, and they flared out that ostium of the stent using the stent balloon. Final angiography that you can see on the website showed no residual stenosis, good flow, no evidence of dissection or trauma. The most important thing is that there's return of anti flow through that left vertebral artery on final angiography. And there's a little before and after shot to help those of you out who might not be able to see that quite as clearly. So things went well. She moves to the PACU for recovery. A full post-procedure neurological exam was performed at this point and was completely unremarkable.
1: I'm just going to reiterate for the audience to definitely take a look at these images. They are very impressive, and there are several reasons to have done this here. One is just to be able to get non-invasive blood pressures. But as was outlined earlier, it's just basically being able to get access for a coronary angiography should she need it down the road. Another implication is she has triple vessel disease, subclavian stenosis, subclavian Artery stenosis is an important reason for having ischemia when somebody has a lima as a graft. And so oftentimes somebody who's had a prior cabbage with a lima graft will have chest pain or like anterior ischemia on imaging and the cath will be negative, but it's important to see, do they actually have subclavian stenosis and are not even perfusing the lima to begin with, even though there's no blockage of the lima. And then the other clinical situation is this patient's cerebral perfusion was essentially entirely coming from the left common carotid because the right side was occluded and then in that situation, the entire circle of Willis is being perfused by that left carotid artery. And I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ashley, but even for a high-grade asymptomatic right-sided carotid stenosis, complete occlusion is essentially, I think, a, a contraindication to revascularizing because it's completely occluded. But this would be a, a setup potentially of having subclavian steel as a cause of syncope. If she starts you know, exercising with her arms and starts to really steal much more blood and perfusion away from her circle of Willis because the vertebral artery is providing that, the left arm, blood. And for a variety of reasons, this is going to really help her moving forward.
2: I would definitely reiterate to take a look at these imagings, particularly the ones where you can watch that the right-sided enominate artery is totally blocked off. And then as they stay on DSA, they can watch the reconstitution with basically coming down on that right side, as Ashley pointed out. I think it's highlighting that you have to stay on and watch what happens afterwards. And if you suspect that there is a blockage, as you see initially, then you definitely want to make sure there's constitutional flow. It would definitely change your management going forward in terms of revascularization and rationale for the approach that you end up taking.
3: Absolutely. And all those points you guys raised were discussed at length before moving forward. But thankfully, the patient got a great result here and ended up recovering in PACU for several hours. She continued to feel well. She was able to get accurate blood pressure in her left upper extremity and was found to be about 132 systolic over about 76 diastolic. And she continued to do well and she was discharged home with close follow-up But, you know, this is cardio nerds, guys. So there must have been some sort of twist here, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there is. Uh, And she did come back two hours later, and she complained of severe pulsating left-sided occipital headache with associated nausea and vomiting. She tried taking some Tylenol at home. This did not alleviate her discomfort. And this was very unusual for her. She was not a lady who typically got headaches with any sort of chronicity. And so this was very much out of left field. So she called cardiology after hours to ask what to do and was advised to come to the emergency room to be evaluated. And upon her arrival, we were called to see her in the ED. So Morgan Hussein, at this point, what are you guys thinking about here? And what things should be going through our minds as we move forward to figure out what's happening?
0: I love those after-hours phone calls and those night <laughs> ED consults. This case is, I think, a great one. And of course, anytime somebody had a procedure done not long ago, anybody who does procedures has to think about potential complications. Could it, something that we did have contributed to this? And in our case, could there be some instant thrombosis or restenosis? It'd be a little bit less likely. It's a big vessel. We use intravascular ultrasound. We don't want to rule anything out. Also, a uh, stroke we were manipulating inside her vasculature. Could there have been some kind of thromboembolic event? Could a plaque have flicked off and gone to the brain? Maybe a blood clot or air if technique wasn't perfect? Could there have been some kind of microperforation or hemorrhage somewhere that's causing her to have headache and symptoms? Also, Her vertebral arteries were close to where we were going. Could there be some kind of compromised vertebral takeoff? We know that her perfusion is already suboptimal, but then could it have maybe not been related to the procedure? Of course, we did this to change the flow in her greater vessels, could there be a higher pressure or lower pressure, some kind of hemodynamic issue that happened? Maybe she had some kind of paraprocedural arrhythmia, AFib, some kind of other arrhythmia that created a clot and had some kind of neurologic event. During the procedure when manipulating, heparin was used, especially going through the radial artery. And also since a stent was deployed uh, using aspirin and clopidogrel or some other antiplatelet agent to keep those stents open. So of course, as you thin the blood, the chance of a hemorrhage would be increased. So all of those things are in the consideration of what could have happened. I think it's very important that Ashley did that neuro exam after the procedure, of course, manipulating in that area, having that good baseline was would be super helpful when this patient comes back to know her last known normal, when symptoms may have happened, and if it is neurologic in the first place.
3: Awesome. Morgan, oh, I think that's an incredible differential and all of those things I think were going through the back of everybody's minds as they went to go examine this lady in the emergency room. So when she arrived to touch on your comments about blood pressure, her blood pressure was still 132 over 73 in that left upper extremity when she presented. So no major hypertension, but you know, certainly numbers that were higher than what we'd been getting previously for her. With her having a severe headache, nausea, vomiting, of course, any sort of cerebral hemorrhage was on the differential. And so she did get a CT non-contrast study to look for hemorrhage. And thankfully, she had absolutely no evidence of cerebral hemorrhage. They did also get a contrasted CT head and neck to make sure that the stent that was just placed is still patent. And it was. Bottom line here is that her imaging really was unchanged compared to her pre-procedure imaging, with the exception that now her subclavian is obviously widely patent. Given everything that's going on, she has a, a normal neurological exam here. She was admitted to the hospital for observation overnight for serial neuro exams and just to monitor her symptoms. And thankfully, she had gradual improvement in her headache to about a five out of 10 by the next morning. So given the fact that she had no progression or no change in her neuro exam, and she was feeling improved, she was discharged home with instruction to record her blood pressures in a log and with the plan to touch base with her by phone two days later. So on follow-up phone call, she says that her headache is continuing to improve. It's about a two out of 10 at this point, and that her blood pressure readings have been anywhere from 100 to 120 systolic over 60 to mid-70s diastolic. An MRI brain was ordered for her to complete just to ensure that there's no small infarct that may have occurred. And she preferred to complete this locally near her home. And so that prior authorization was going through. But at this point, the team was really putting their heads together. and, And I think it was a really incredible multidisciplinary approach to this patient to think what could have happened here We were reaching out to other cardiologists within our department, but also folks at other institutions, talking with our neurology colleagues and our surgical colleagues. And at the end of the day, which I think we've touched on after our discussion of her angiography and revascularization, this lady was dependent upon one vessel to provide her entire cerebral circulation. And now we have restored antegrade flow to that vertebral artery, and we've really altered her hemodynamics in this neurovascular bed. And all in all, what we ended up discovering is that this could be a pretty rare complication that isn't necessarily well described with subclavian revascularization, but has been with carotid disease, and that this may actually be a variant of cerebral hyperperfusion syndrome. So I know we've all been doing a little bit of reading about this. Hussain, what have you learned so far?
4: Yeah, actually, that's definitely not a syndrome I had heard of previously, but it's actually well described in the literature, typically after carotid endarterectomy. A group out of Imperial College London in UK in the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery suggested four criteria to define this syndrome. The first of which was that the onset of symptoms should occur within 30 days post-procedure. Next, there should be some clinical features such as new onset headache like our patient had, or seizure, hemiparesis, or Glasgow Coma Scale score of less than 15, and radiologic features including cerebral edema or intracerebral hemorrhage. Next, there should be some evidence of hyperperfusion, which is defined as one of two things, either cerebral blood flow greater than 100% of preoperative values, and that's assessed on imaging studies such as transcranial Doppler, SPECT imaging, or magnetic resonance perfusion imaging or the systolic blood pressure is greater than 180 millimeters of mercury. And then finally, there should be no evidence of new cerebral ischemia, post-operative carotid occlusion, or any new metabolic or pharmacologic derangement that may be causing the patient's symptoms. So I'm far from an expert on the topic and its neurological ramifications, but from what I gather, there are several theories that have been proposed to explain why cerebral hyperperfusion syndrome occurs. The prevailing hypothesis is that it incorporates a mixture of uncontrolled hypertension and impaired autoregulation of the vasculature. In the setting of carotid artery stenosis and poor perfusion to the brain, the intracerebral vasculature dilates to promote more perfusion. This fixed state of dilation leads to loss of autoregulation of the vascular tone, and after carotid and the intracerebral vessels remain dilated. With the increased blood flow to the brain from the now revascularized carotid artery, there is hyperperfusion, which can result in cerebral hyperperfusion syndrome. But not every patient experiences this after carotid revascularization. So it's interesting to see what makes patients high risk for this. Morgan, I know you were doing some digging into this. Can you tell us a few things that make patients high risk?
0: Yes. I think the best article I found was a Lancet Neurology article looking for risk factors so risk factors for this syndrome would be diabetes, longstanding hypertension, pre-existing hypertensive microangiopathy, which we may not have known at the time, but with Dr. Papine here at UF, he's a world expert in microvascular disease, another former ACC president. I'm sure we have found out since. Uh, a minor stroke in the presenting history would also be a risk factor, age over 72, contralateral CEA within the last three months or high-grade carotid artery stenosis. Also, some preoperative flow-related risk factors would be poor collateral flow, contralateral carotid occlusion, an incomplete circle of Willis, preoperative hypoperfusion, diminished cerebrovascular reactivity or reserve, or finally intracerebral steel. So when we look at all of those risk factors, our patient actually had most of those and probably was a setup for this syndrome. So Ashley, is there any data about percutaneous revascularization in this setting?
3: So that's a good question. And there really, as I mentioned earlier, is not a lot out there with regards to subclavian disease causing this. There are several case reports out there. There are some more robust papers out there in terms of carotid percutaneous revascularization one of which was a retrospective analysis of about 450 patients who underwent carotid PCI, and basically they looked for complications of hyperperfusion or intracerebral hemorrhage. And of those 450 patients, five developed complications of hyperperfusion, and of those five patients, three of those developed intracerebral hemorrhage. Now, unfortunately, of those three who developed hemorrhage, two passed away But when looking at this whole group of patients who ended up developing hyperperfusion complications to look for commonalities, they were all found to have internal carotid disease of 95% or greater, as well as a contralateral stenosis of greater than 80% or a contralateral occlusion with periprocedural hypertension. I think the biggest takeaway here is that these patients who were more prone to this complication not only had the risk factors that you mentioned, Morgan, but also had just a very significant burden of disease, not only for the primary lesion that's being treated, but also had contralateral disease and their circulation was otherwise compromised with other high grade lesions that made them more prone to developing this rare type of complication.
2: Guys, this discussion is really unbelievable. And for us in cardiology that do procedures, that as Morgan alluded to earlier, in almost like a grumbling fashion, you know, we do all these procedures, and we really enjoy taking care of the patients. And that's almost the fun part of the proceduring. But we're also medicine doctors and cardiologists. And so really, we take ownership of these patients. And when they when you get that dreaded call of, Hey, something's not right, doc. Even though I got discharged or something's wrong, we got to take it seriously. And I love the approach that we took with the differential diagnosis and taking the patient extremely seriously. So much so that after we've ruled out hemorrhagic stroke and a lot of the things that we thought of initially, which would be catastrophic complications of this procedure, we even dug deeper. We said, okay, she still has symptoms and what's going on. And if you just Google subclavian intervention and her symptoms, we may have missed that. But you said, let's look at what's similar out there. And you put together a story and compiled evidence with a sense of humility that said, hey, there's not a lot described about what we did and this, but gosh, this sounds really similar to what we've seen with carotid interventions and put that together. Really, that just shows that we're not just saying, okay, it's not a hemorrhagic stroke. See you later. Follow up. No, it's this intellectual curiosity that you're demonstrating that you're trying to put something together and potentially are describing something new to add to the literature that's already out there. So just incredible. And I know that Amit and I have been reading about this entity and he has definitely something he'd like to share.
1: Yeah. And I just, as Dan's applauding you for the clinical approach here, I want to applaud you all for the teaching and education you brought to this case, because you're taking a challenging situation that isn't within the routine practice of most cardiologists, and it really ran towards it. It shows a passion for learning uh, and a growth mindset. And it's one of the things that I love so much about cardiology and medicine in general. There's, at the turn of every corner, there's something we don't know. And it's just, uh, it keeps it very exciting and fresh. And when I approach something that I don't know, I try to think, okay, what are the basic principles here that I can extrapolate from something else that I do know? And so I think about a couple of things for this case. One is, what is coronary perfusion pressure, right? And the coronary perfusion pressure is very intuitive to us. It's diastolic blood pressure minus the LVEDP. And here, it's an analogous situation for the cerebral perfusion pressure, which is the MAP minus the intracranial pressure. And if the CVP is higher, then it's MAP minus the CVP, which would be more relevant for somebody with elevated filling pressures, like constriction, for instance. And then what's flow? Flow is Ohm's law, right? So cerebral blood flow is a cerebral perfusion pressure divided by the resistance. And so in this patient, we took away the resistance and the blood flow normally wouldn't have gone up. So in general, the ability of the body to auto-regulate flow to an organ is quite immense, right? It can essentially maintain constant flow over a broad range of blood pressures. And typically for this cerebral perfusion pressure, it's in the order of 50 to 150. But here, your brain was used to auto-regulating at a much lower range. And all of a sudden, you're inundating it with this huge flood of blood, which is going to help the patient a lot in the long run for all the reasons that we outlined. But the brain wasn't used to auto-regulating here. And, and in addition to that, there's also obviously, I'm sure, molecular reasons like free radical injury from reperfusion injury and things like this. But you've flooded and overrun the brain's ability to auto-regulate. The analogous condition that I would think about here is PRESS, which is posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome from just global systemic hypertension. But here, this is more of a regional similar I think, disease process probably. And so I think the the presentations can be similar, right? So like seizure and a focal neurologic deficit and a headache. And so you've really, with this discussion, expanded my horizons in so many different directions, just like basic evaluation to, of PAD to such a nuanced and specific disease process that I now have a framework for. So thank you so much.
3: Awesome. This was an incredible learning curve for all of us as well. And I think we just really wanted to get our patient some answers, but also we're all of the mindset where we want to be able to understand what's going on with this lady and with this patient and try to have some sort of sense of what could have caused this and, and how we can think about patients in the future and perhaps how we can educate patients down the line, if, if we encounter a similar situation, where perhaps if we are performing a subclavian revascularization procedure on other patients, perhaps this is something that now we, we have a few more tips of what else we should look at just beyond the lesion itself to potentially avoid this in future. Hopefully, we'll be able to carry that forward with us. But finally, just to have a little bit of closure with our case, we saw the patient in follow-up clinic several months after and her headache had almost completely resolved at this point, it was about a one out of ten. And she noticed that the character of her headache had changed at this point. And we did get the results of that MRI that she had done locally, and there was really nothing remarkable about that study, no evidence of hemorrhage, ischemia, really nothing to write home about, and did not provide us any further answers. She was eventually referred to a neurology to evaluate this headache further, ensure that there wasn't something else that we were missing and ultimately had a repeat MRI and significant workup with their team that was all pretty unrevealing. And her second MRI several months after her initial was unchanged. And thankfully the patient continues to do well, is now symptom free and we'll have to stay tuned at her next follow up visit.
2: Guys, definitely keep us posted. One of the things that we're trying to do with this series is be deliberate about showing the audience and the world how much we love cardiology. And we is the larger cardiogenic family, which definitely includes you guys. Your appreciation for this is just has been so palpable throughout this amazing discussion. We really covered so many things from the peripheral vascular disease epidemiology risk stratification, diagnostics, management, and management of complications related to procedures. It's just unbelievable knowledge bombs that have been thrown our way. And it's so exciting to see how exciting you are about the field. So if you wouldn't mind each of you telling us, why did you choose cardiology? And specifically, what drew you to the University of Florida besides for amazing weather and just sun almost all the time?
3: Absolutely. My reasons for pursuing cardiology, I guess in some respects are a little bit cliche. My grandfather, when I was very young, ended up needing a heart transplant. And so I had this very early exposure to medicine and cardiology specifically and was just always very fascinated by it. And throughout my schooling, I was just, the physiology and hemodynamics made sense to me. I really just reveled in my time in the critical care unit, in my medicine training, in my rotations. And it just became very clear to me that cardiology was my true passion. And specifically with regards to Florida and UF, I think the thing that has struck me the most were the people, both faculty and fellows. Everybody here is like a family, I distinctly remember actually when I came here for my interview, it just, it was so clear to me how friendly everybody was and they didn't just care about me obtaining information to make my decision, but they were invested in giving me advice about my future career and how to move forward and how to become an established cardiologist. And to me, that was just so remarkable and has held true for the last two years that I've been here. I enjoy going to work every day. I enjoy spending time with my co-fellows. And on top of all of that, as a woman in cardiology, I should say as a woman in cardiology, we have a lot of women on faculty at UF, including in the interventional department. I think at this point, I I believe our interventional cardiology faculty are almost 50% female between the UF side of the street and the VA, which we also work at as well. And this is certainly a program that values diversity and I was able to see folks here who I could model my career after and, and really see myself having a great mentoring relationship with. So that was super important. Uh, of course, as you, as you mentioned, Dan, Florida is sunny. It is warm. We have so many outdoor activities that you know, are at of fingertips reach. We can be at the beach within an hour. We can go down to Orlando and get our Harry Potter on or our Disney on if that's what we want. And we can kayak in the springs and, and go on some really beautiful nature hikes and trails. So all of those things, I think, make Florida wonderful. And with all of that, we have access to all the super fellowships and a, a clinically very busy program. That's me. That's why cardiology and why Florida.
4: For me, I would have to say my original interest in cardiology. So I actually joined medical school interested in psychiatry, which I thought I was 100% going to do. And then as you remember, I went to medical school here actually at the University of Florida. When we got to the cardiology unit, we had some of our excellent faculty who are still on faculty here give us lectures. And my first introduction to ECG interpretation, you may have got a hint in the earlier discussion of the case when I was talking about QRS complex and Doppler waveforms, but I was really just fascinated with the EKG just to start off with. And then the discussion of hemodynamics and all the great teachers who I had on the cardiology clerkship there solidified my interest. And then throughout residency, just a lot of time in the CICU and really just loving every moment I had there and all the hemodynamic interpretation and management of the patients was really my love for cardiology. For Florida in particular, just echoing off what Ashley said, I think number one for me when I was interviewing was definitely the vibe I got off of all the people I met. And Ashley, you may not remember but you were s- sitting next to me at my interview dinner.
3: Oh yeah. Um,
4: <laughs> and I actually just meeting everyone there, including you, I just got this really welcoming, friendly vibe and really supportive atmosphere. And if I remember Davil was sitting on my other side, Davil was one of our third year cardiology fellows last year, who is now an attending for general cardiology at our program, and just a really supportive collegial atmosphere and great environment to work in. I think the next thing is that we have some really outstanding faculty. We have a nationally and internationally renowned faculty. We have two former presidents of the American College of Cardiology on staff. That's Dr. C. R. Conti and Dr. Papine. And Dr. Conti even attends all of our educational conferences and lectures, seminars, our grand rounds, and provides some really expert opinion and such insight that we wouldn't get from anywhere else. So it's really nice to have their presence here. And still, Dr. Pepin is a kind of a national kind of stalwart or worldwide stalwart on his research and endeavors. And just really nice to have that mix of that expertise. And then a lot of younger attendings who are just excellent clinical teachers and active, energetic, scholarly active, and always fostering and available to help us in our career decisions as well. And then finally, something that we're extremely proud of and excited about is our VA. We split time at University of Florida, at our main hospital, at Shands Hospital, and then across the street at our VA. And our VA, in terms of cardiology, is probably the busiest in the country. We do the highest amount of TAVR in the country. Way over 25% of the national VA cases of TAVR are done here. We have the highest volume of PCI in the country and the highest volume of CTO PCI as well. Just an extremely busy cardiology department at the VA, something we're extremely proud of. And we have excellent faculty there and great mentorship and research opportunities available just through that as well. So something we're very proud of here.
0: For me, I'd say cardiology just was a natural fit for me. A lot of, like most Americans, I have cardiovascular disease in my family and know people who have been affected by cardiovascular disease and going into medical school and learning about the path of physiology. It was just so intuitive. It was easy to think through. It was fun looking into cardiology even more. It's just, there's a lot of variety. You can do different things on different days all within cardiology There's so much excitement with new things in terms of medications or procedures or devices or you name it. It's just so easy to be excited, not only about what cardiology currently has, but the direction it's going and all the fun things that are coming out. I don't think I'll ever actually be bored in cardiology ever. So it just was a natural fit, I think, for me. In terms of why UF, it's going to be a little cliche, and I'm sure everybody says it, but I feel like everybody should say it's the people. When you go into your interviews, when you meet the faculty, the fellows, the staff, everybody was just so welcoming and engaging. Actually, Ashley, you were at my interview dinner too. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but I remember that interview dinner probably the most memorable of all of my interview dinners. Not that any of them were bad, but one of our younger attendees, Doctor Masumi, showed up. So Masumi was there, and he was bidding on this like Cutco knife on eBay or something. it was like our I remember this dinner. very
3: vividly. It was
0: it was hilarious, and like this is the type of person that goes to UF. Count me in. It was just really great. We also have great patients. We have a a great mix of younger patients and older patients, a really wide referral base. Geographically, we bring a lot of patients here to UF. Because it is Florida, we probably are overrepresented in some older patients. And because it's America, we're probably overrepresented in cardiovascular disease. So we, we get a lot of really rich patient level teaching. There's clinical excellence here at every turn. There's active research. It's easy to participate in. Like you mentioned, the interdisciplinary support is incredible. We have a a wonderful culture, not just within our division, but outside within the medicine department. We have great relationships with our surgeons, neurology, you name it. It's just a, a great kind of sense of purpose. And that would even extend to the town of Gainesville. As you can tell in our socially distanced tailgate here, it's just a great sense of community everywhere you go in a college town like this. And so it really uh, drew me for, I think, the right reasons. And I've really been thrilled with my experience here.
1: Wow. Uh, Hussein, Morgan, Ashley, I I really have nothing eloquent to say because I am just floored and speechless. And so in commending you on doing everything else, I want to also commend you in making a podcaster speechless. It is not a good combo. (laughs) you know we, we have learned so much about disease processes that i haven't spent that much time thinking about or reading about and learned so much about the culture at your program and totally sharing your love for cardiology and our sneak peek into the program has been a really productive and inspiring relationship that we are developing with dr key park who we thank for one connecting us with you all so that itself has been great but then also we, as a platform, promoting diversity and the importance of inclusion has been always a key part of our mission, but we're going to be deliberately launching a series called Narratives in Cardiology to highlight the individual differences that make us stronger together. And we're just so proud to say that Dr. Key Park is going to be one of our faculty advisors and her being a voice at the program just, I think, even more so underlines everything actually that you were saying about the culture of the program. And in getting to know her a little bit, we've been messaging with her as we were we've been essentially floored by your teaching and your discussion, and Dr. Park essentially uh, she wrote back to us saying, "Yeah, these guys are the bomb." Quote. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, awesome. "Okay." Okay. Nobody uses that anymore, but so true. So we messaged back. And, <laughs> no, let's be real. Truly the bomb. On that note, I just want to thank you guys for being the bomb and totally exploding us with all the knowledge and teaching and, and love and passion and excitement. It's been so much fun. Thank you guys. Thank
4: Thanks, you guys. For having Thanks so much for having awesome.
1: us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, guys, this was
2: great. And I always actually do say the which uh, is also
3: Never goes out of style. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and now an ECPR from Dr. Kanjan Shah, one of our excellent interventional cardiology faculty here at UF and a fellow favorite for education in the cath lab. Thank you, Ashley.
5: So. Ashley Morgan Hussein, that was amazing and so much teaching. I was sitting here taking notes as well, despite being the faculty mentor here. The best part of our fellowship is our fellows, and I hope that you saw that today. It's not just the people, but specifically the fellows. And Ashley Morgan Hussein, you are certainly something to be proud of. I think a good discussion of any case involves a historical perspective. So that's where I want to start here. We can only appreciate how far we've come in the treatment of disease when we look back and look at our history. So, in the 1950s, subclavian disease or arch vessel disease in general was treated with open surgical thoracotomies. As you can imagine, that's incredibly invasive. So, it was not till 1969 that extra anatomic bypass, i.e., carotid subclavians, et cetera, were introduced. And it brought the mortality of treatment of disease from an alarming 22% to just under 6%. So already just enormous innovation in the treatment of disease. In the 1980s, endovascular treatment, namely angioplasty alone, was introduced for the treatment of subclavian stenosis, but came with about a 20% percent restenosis rate, which was not ideal. And so in the late 1990s or 2000s is when we began to stent subclavian stenosis or any great vessel stenosis. And that's when we really saw the fantastic outcomes that we've been able to appreciate today. So just in 70 years, we've come so far in the treatment of these patients. I will say I moved many places in the United States and it's pretty typical for these patients to come into our clinic at UF saying, I have disease of this vessel, and I would like for you to give me an opinion and ideally treat it. And as an interventionalist, that makes you salivate. That's the best thing that you can get when patients know exactly where their disease is, and they would ask you for a fix. And this is relatively common. 20% of Floridians are over the age of 65, so we get some really good disease, and we're able to hopefully treat these patients well and make them live longer and feel better, whatever the case is. Morgan, Hussein and Ashley went through the major indications. i just like to say that in in the largest series of these patients with subclavian stenosis that was done at the Cleveland Clinic, the number one reason to intervene on subclavian stenosis was in fact coronary steel from a lema. And so in our patients who have a lemma, we have to protect that lemma. So that is an absolute indication to stent or at least treat subclavian stenosis. They talked about upper extremity claudication. For non-invasive testing of patients who complain of upper extremity claudication symptoms, you can get an upper extremity ABI, which is interpreted in the exact same way as lower extremity ABI. So a value of 0.9 or less is considered abnormal and should trigger further intervention or at least imaging. I'd like to add that the number one etiology of the disease, like Hussein mentioned, is atherosclerotic disease. But importantly, aorto aortoosteal lesions are the most common site. So as opposed to mid-subclavian or even distal subclavian axillary artery stenosis, right at the takeoff of the subclavian or the innominate artery is where you're most likely to have disease, which has implications for treatment as well. Again, all the patients that come to my PAD clinic, because I had the PAD clinic here, get their blood pressure tested on both sides. And what I'm doing essentially is screening for upper extremity occlusive disease when I do that. If I do see a differential in blood pressure, it reminds me to ask patients, are they having any upper extremity symptoms that are concerning that I then need to evaluate any further? We talked about DSA, but MRA and CTA can also be important in the endovascular or surgical planning of patients that have aerodobstructive disease. And so you can order either of those tests and this patient had a CTA, in fact. And then the treatment. So the question always remains, is surgical treatment favored or is endovascular treatment favored? And importantly, there's no head-to-head comparison of the two. I think most people, vascular surgeons and cardiologists alike, Will agree that endovascular treatment, when feasible, is the preferred treatment strategy because of how incredibly invasive open treatment can be for patients. And so, even if you buy them some time, especially if they're older with endovascular treatment, it is the preferred strategy. Because I'm an interventionalist, I want to give a little bit of kind of pearls on the treatment. The access to treat subclavian stenosis is almost always done antigrade through a transfemoral approach. It can be done retrograde through a brachial or carotid approach. The carotid approach requires a cut down, so that's more invasive. But the reason that radial approach hasn't really taken off in the treatment of subclavian disease is that oftentimes it requires an 8 French catheter for treatment, and an 8 French is just a little bit large to put in the radials, although I'm sure it's been done because basically all things have been done. The stent of choice is a balloon expandable stent as opposed to a self-expanding stent. And that's largely because balloon expandable stents have increased radial force. A lot of times this disease can be calcified, so that radial force is important. It provides for excellent apposition to the vessel wall. And importantly, it also allows for greater accuracy with placement. If there's one point I can share with you about the interventional treatment of subclavian disease, it is that do not jail the vertebral or the IMA. Do not jail the vertebral or the IMA. And that's because it's going to be very problematic. And because most diseases aorta, osseal, you are far away from the takeoff of the vertebral or the IMA, but the balloon expandable stent again gives you greater precision to make sure that you don't jail these very important branch vessel. If the disease extends into the mid or distal portion of the subclavian, the preference is that you do not place a stent there. And that's because it could be deformed by a clavicle or a first rib. And so ideally you would either balloon that or just completely treat it medically and leave it alone. And then there's always going to be a question of embolic protection device. So we talked about how one potential complication of this procedure is embolism and subsequent stroke. And so a lot of people do favor the use of embolic protection devices when going antegrade, i.e. from the transfemoral, especially if you're treating the innominant. This is more important if you're treating right-sided disease because of the common takeoff. But again, some people will also use embolic protection devices in the treatment of left-sided disease as well. And it's important to know you know you when you're planning for these patients what the potential complications can be so that you can avoid complications, which is the best way to deal with complications. The final thing I want to talk about is I did not train at University of Florida, but I've been practicing here for approximately one year. And I think that it's a fantastic place to train and to work. I agree with Ashley Morgan Hussein. The best part is the people, not only the faculty, but the fellows as well. We see real disease. We see calcified disease. We do complex procedures, which is fantastic, not only when you're learning, but even when you're early career and you need to keep up those skills and continue to grow. As a mother, I think it's a wonderful place To raise your family, I think it's easy. It's affordable. A lot of fellows will either have children or contemplate having children during their training. And I think this is a great place to have a family and have a lot of support. The weather is beautiful. You can afford a really nice house and have a great life. And I think that for anyone considering a career in cardiology who wants to work in a busy place and have intellectual curiosity, this is a place that you should consider. So thank you very much for allowing me to be involved.
1: Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardi Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardi Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Berghese are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Hold on. I think somebody gulped.
2: (laughs) I could be wrong, but let's assume somebody gulped. Okay. And just hour.
0: It was
1: too think, Why you gotta call him out, man? You could just be like, oh, I heard about Just really firsty, <laughs> man. <It was> <laughs>
4: not,
1: I, I forget which recording it was. I I ate something and it was like moist, and Dan was like, oh, that was gross. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just so awesome, about I, love beauty, it, you know.
2: I love a good gulp sound. I love it. I love it.
4: I, love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, like, I was
2: like, did I just gulp? And did I stop gulping?
1: Um, wait, let's not talk about who gulped. All right, let's be yeah. <laughs>
2: Dan.
1: Dan. I know who you are. I know
5: who you are. <laughs> <laughs>